So I'm John, part of the team here. Um, I'm going to be talking to us. We're going to be continuing our series um, looking at Jesus, who is the image of God. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. I'm going to be talking about Jesus today. I'm really excited that we are doing this series about Jesus. I said to Sam the other day, I said, you know, it doesn't really work like this, but if I'm team anything, I'm team Jesus when it comes to, to knowing what God is like. I just, I am captivated and my mind is blown that God would make himself known to us in the form of a person and it would show up in time and space a couple of thousand years ago um, and live and die and be raised to life again. And then somehow that's how we get to know him blows my mind. Um, But today I'm going to talk about Jesus the creator or Christ the creator because as every primary school student knows alliteration is good. Um, We're going to talk about how Jesus was the creator, how he will be the creator and how he is the creator in the here and now because he's making everything new. So let's dive right in. What does it mean for us to say that Jesus was the creator, right? To say that Jesus made the world. Um, So one of our anchors for this series is Colossians 1, um, where we read this about Jesus in verse 15 onwards. It says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Big clue there. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So here, the writer of of Colossians has given us a very clear message. In him, all things were created. Everything was made in and through and by Jesus. So that's it. Jesus is the creator. We can move on, right? But as as San shared a few weeks ago, there's another key passage in the New Testament that tells us that, that Jesus was there all the way back in the beginning. We look at John chapter 1. Um, words that will be familiar to you if you've ever attended a carol service, like ever. It gets wheeled out. But John 1, um, it's for life, it's not just for Christmas. And John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In the beginning, does that remind you of anything? Genesis, Karim, what on me? Um, yeah, John is clearly making an allusion, allusion, not an illusion, allusion uh, to Genesis chapter one. Like he's using, it's only two words, but he's using the same two opening words in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, right at the start, in the beginning, NRK. Um, and as we know, Genesis 1 contains the first of these two beautiful and brilliant creation stories that we find at the start of our Bible. But when you go and read Genesis 1, I, I read it this week and I couldn't find Jesus mentioned there anywhere. I couldn't see the name Jesus in Genesis 1. And he's not mentioned by name and I think you've got to be clutching at some, 
some straws to find, to build any sort of case that Jesus is mentioned in Genesis chapter 1. Um, I don't think the author of Genesis had anything remotely kind of Trinitarian um, or Christological in mind when he was writing that creation story. But what we do have, we have the advantage of hindsight. We get to stand here and look back because of the paradigm shift of the incarnation of Jesus. When Jesus shows up sometime around the year zero, maybe it's 7 BC, maybe it's 4 AD, no one really knows, sometime around the year zero, everything changes and we get to reread this stuff in the light of who Jesus is. You know, for example, the author of Hebrews tells us that in the past God spoke through the prophets, but now he's spoken through Jesus. And it's this sort of progressive progression of revelation that in Jesus we get the fullness, we get everything made whole, the exact representation of who God is and what he's like. Brian Zand, who's a pastor and author, puts it this way, God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but we do now. So the writer of Genesis didn't know that Jesus was the creator because there was no way for him to know. But when we look back through the lens of the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we get to know now. And in some senses, the Bible is a strange book. Like the main character doesn't turn up till like two thirds of the way through and then he dies quite soon after. I wouldn't write it that way. But this is the Bible we have. It's beautiful and it's brilliant. And despite the Old Testament writers, they're, they're kind of reaching after this, this need for someone like Jesus, but they didn't know who he was. So they couldn't identify him and say, yes, this is the guy. So what we have got, we've got John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. And when John calls Jesus the word, there's something deeper and richer going on here than just to say that Jesus is a unit of speech. He is part of a sentence. He is a word. The Greek translation here, the Greek word that's translated word, um, in Greek is the word logos. Lots of words going on there. Sorry about that. The Greek word translated here is logos, and it means more than just word. It speaks of divine logic, divine reason, divine wisdom. And so much so, this, this concept of Logos is like, it's in the air in the first century. Um, both in the Greek mindset and in the Jewish mindset. When you read the Old Testament, you read a um, chapter like Proverbs 8. Wisdom is a person. Wisdom is a person that helped make the world that wasn't created like the rest of us. Wisdom um, helped shape the world. Like, this is a strange thing. So in, in Hebrew thought, you've got the idea there's something else hanging out with God that looks a bit like wisdom, but we don't know what it is. And then in Greek thought, Logos has got this long history of, of meaning. But around the first century, um, a school of thought called Stoicism, um, Logos comes to be known as the activating and the animating force behind the universe Logos is what makes the divine known to us. Logos is what makes the world happen. And it's out of that mindset that John is writing. There's a Jewish philosopher called Philo of Alexandria who was writing almost at exactly the same time while Jesus was walking around on the earth and he merges these two ideas. So this is a contemporary to John definition of the word Logos. 
He says, the logos of the living God is the bond of everything, holding all things together and binding all the parts and prevents them from being dissolved and separated. So this, this is who John is saying Jesus is. He's saying he's the one holding all these things together. He's binding all the parts. He's preventing things from flying off in their own direction. Jesus is the one holding everything together. Jesus is the one who was there at the beginning. Jesus is the one who all things were made through. And Jesus is the one who doesn't just show us what God is like, but he is God himself. It's Jesus. And not in some universal, mystical way either. John goes on to say, as Paul does in the New Testament, that the word became flesh. That there's a particular and specific way that this Logos shows up and makes himself known to us. The Logos, or the Christ, is specific to the person of Jesus. And they're not two separate things. Jesus is not just a representation or expression of the Logos of God. He is the Logos of God. So we don't know that Jesus is creator because we find any answers in Genesis, but because the New Testament tells us in beautiful, poetic form that when God made the world, he made it with and through Jesus. So Jesus was the creator. But the Bible also tells us that Jesus will be a creator. We've been singing about it today. There's a new creation coming. You know, we've gone back to the start of the story, but let's take a moment to consider the end of the story. When we look at the closing chapters of the Bible, we find what all this is pointing to, how the whole story finds its close. And it's not an eternal worship service. It's not us all sitting about on clouds playing harps, which personally I'm really glad about. Um, But there's a promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation chapter 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. It's good news. I get far more excited about this than just simply the idea of going to heaven when we die. I don't know about you. And here, John the Revelator, he's channeling some promises found in Isaiah 65 and Isaiah 25 as he looks forward to the end of all things, the culmination and the climax of history, which is that heaven and earth get to be made new and they get to be one together. And this is the promise, not of a disembodied eternal existence in the by and by, but a renewed, restored and reconciled heaven and earth dwelling together with Jesus at the centre without death, without mourning, without crying, without pain. It's a new creation and all things get made new. 
you know, this kind of took me by surprise in my 30s when I started reading what the Bible actually said because it just wasn't stuff that people ever talked to me about when I was growing up. Maybe it's not the same for you. But just to throw out some resources that I found really helpful in just imagining what is the what are we actually hoping for? A book called Surprise by Hope by my guy Tom Wright and another one, Garden City by John Mark Comer. These just helped me open my eyes to something that was a bit different to how this stuff was talked about when I was growing up. Or at least, maybe that's not what was talked about, but that was what I picked up anyway. And it's hard to get our heads around. There's talk of resurrected bodies, and um, the New Testament's actually kind of pretty sketchy when it comes to describing what eternal life actually like means. Um, and what this age to come looks like. Um, and our very best efforts. And Tom Wright says this, like, it's like signposts pointing into the fog and saying, there's something over there that's really good. But I don't quite know what it is, because I can't imagine it, because I'm not there right now. But what we do know is this, history finds its fulfillment with a new creation. And not just in the beginning, but at the end, we'll find that Jesus is the creator. Jesus will be the one that makes all things new. And in the meantime, guess what? Jesus is creating. He's at work. Jesus is the creator here and now. You know, and this, this is the story of creation and recreation all along. Throughout the biblical story, you find a cycle of new creation. You know, Genesis 1, there's these waters covering the earth. And so whenever we read this picture of the waters going back through the Old Testament, they're a symbol of descent into chaos and back into order as God creates. So when the Lord floods the earth again in Genesis 6, he's recreating. He's taking it back to that primordial state and then life emerges. When Noah survives on the ark, and then that's an act of recreation. When the Hebrews pass through the waters of the Red Sea, coming out of Egypt on their exodus, and then again, going through the waters of the Jordan and into the promised land, they're enacting this new creation. They're saying with their physical bodies, with the whole movement of these people, there is something new that is coming. Look at it. It's rebirth and recreation. You know, John the baptizer, baptizing people in the River Jordan, he's not simply cleansing them of their sin, but they're acting out the fact that they're being made new. They're being reborn into a new creation. But with Jesus, it's the start of something new and different. He's not just acting out the same cycle again of new birth, but then stumbling into old patterns and needing recreation again. The new birth and the new creation that is offered by Jesus is a foretaste of what is to come. John, in his gospel, he sets this whole thing up. He begins within the beginning, and he sets this whole thing up as like an echo of Genesis, of that creation story in Genesis 1, where you find there's these seven creative miracles. And the eighth one is Jesus rising from the dead. And John refers to this as happening on the first day of the week. That's significant because before creation happened in a week, but on the first day of the new week, the first day of new creation, Jesus rises from the dead. 
And with Jesus, the age that is to come, the age of new creation, the age of new heavens and new earth, is breaking in to this present age. You know, you may have heard this called various things. You may have heard this called the now and the not yet. And we see some signs of this new creation, but we still experience the brokenness in the here and now. We sang it earlier. Do you feel the world is broken? Yeah, we do. You don't have to imagine very far. You're not going to have to walk very far out of this door on your way home to find some brokenness. But we believe that Jesus has everything that's needed to restore and make new. And it's a sure and certain promise of what is coming that gets brought into the here and now. You know, that's why Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done. You know, the kingdom of new creation, that would break through into the darkness and brokenness here and now. It's what we're asking for every time we pray for a miracle. We're saying, God, in the place where there's no pain and there's no suffering, would you let that be true here and now? We're putting a future reality into today. And for us personally, when we come to Jesus, we get to be made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17. I learned this verse as a kid. Don't know about anyone else if they memorize Bible verses. I think I did it to get a free pizza, ultimately. But I learned a bunch of Bible verses. This is one of them. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. If we're in Christ, that's Paul's way of saying, if you've become a Christian, if you've come to Jesus, if you said yes to him, you're made new. And for some of us, this feels a lot more realized. It feels a lot more real than, than for others. Some of you might have felt new once, but now something's missing. Or maybe like me, you never really knew life without Jesus. You know, I gave my heart to Jesus when I was four or five. Quite a few times, I was a bit scared of going to hell, but um, I'm definitely less worried about going to hell right now. I just want to be with Jesus. I'm well aware of my need to continually come to him and ask him to make me new. And today I want to give us an opportunity to come to him and be made new again. You know, maybe it's just a general sense of dullness, you maybe just don't feel particularly new in Jesus. Or maybe there's something specific that is in your life that you need to repent of. You know, like King David in the Old Testament, he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killed her husband and he gets called out on it by Nathan the prophet. And at some point after this, he writes Psalm 51, which is a beautiful model of what biblical repentance and contrition looks like. And he says this in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Now he's asking the creator to create when we mess up, even in a pretty spectacular way like David did. There's grace and there's an opportunity to experience the new creation at work within us. And the doorway to this, in verse 17, David says, is a broken spirit. And he goes on to say, God, you want a broken and contrite heart. In order to receive the new heart that God wants to put in us, we need to be honest about our own condition before the Lord. We need to be ready to confess our sin 
to be broken for the, before the Lord. That doesn't mean smashed into tiny pieces, but to be contrite, to be humble, to recognize and to name the sin that we have done, to take ownership of that and to come before the Lord without pretense. I don't want to take a moment for us to do that shortly. But before that, I just want to talk about the kind of newness that Jesus offers. You see, there are two kinds of newness that the New Testament talks about that get translated new in our English Bibles. Matthew 9, verse 17 is a good place to see this. Jesus is talking about new wine and new wineskins. He says, neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, but the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. There's two words here that mean new. We have neos and we have kainos. And neos means new in time, like it, it wasn't there before, like it's new. But it's just like more of the same. It's like the wine is the same wine that was there before. It's the same kind of wine. But the word kainos means new and better in quality. New and improved. So it's not just that the wineskin is new, but it has the quality of being better and better equipped than the old one was. Now, admittedly, if you're reading this in the ESV or the NIV, it probably says fresh wineskins, and this point doesn't hold up quite so well. But, you know, pick my translation for a good reason. Um, but whenever we, want, whenever we hear about what Jesus wants to do with us, it's always in this latter form of kainos newness. So 2 Corinthians 5.17, we're kainos creations. We're new and improved and different creations. It wasn't just that God pressed the reset button, that we got an extra life and we got to start again. He's not just rehashing and reenacting this thing with us. And the new heavens and the new earth is not just pressing a reset button. It's not just pulling the, it's not just turning it off and back on again to get your PC to work. He's making everything kinos new when he creates. Something was, is now different to how it was before. But just because something's new and improved, it doesn't mean there's nothing left of what was there before. It doesn't mean we're just wiped out and a new imposter put in our place. Remember, the resurrected Jesus, who we read was the firstborn from the dead, the firstborn of this new creation. His body carried the scars of his death. He had the scars in his hands and his side. Not everything completely disappears on the other side of new creation. It carries the essence of what it did before. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been Jesus, right? If we're going to be resurrected with him, if we're going to have new life with him, there's going to be something about us that remains. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's talking to church leaders, but he's talking about what they build, and he says that anything built on the foundation of Jesus that is wood, hay, or straw is going to get burnt up and disappear, but what is silver and gold will remain. Not everything 
is going to stay the same, but some things will. Some things are good and beautiful, and we will carry them with us. Just like Jesus carried the scars of his sacrifice with him into his new resurrected body. But in the, we're in this middle, we're waiting for the day when all will be renewed and restored. We're in the middle, but that means we have to care for the things that are going to last. We need to care for our bodies because Jesus thinks they're good enough to be resurrected and to be taken into this eternal age, albeit refreshed and restored. But he says they're good enough. We need to care for our planet because even though a new heaven is coming down, a new Jerusalem is descending, God's not done with it yet. We need to care for one another because people are the silver and the gold that will survive the fire. You know, Peter offers us these words in 2 Peter 3 as we wait for a new creation. And he describes this as like going through fire and everything being destroyed. And this is what I kind of mean by like, some of this stuff is a bit of a mystery. Some of this stuff is a bit of a tension to hold together. It's where Revelation talks about new heavens and earth coming together as one. Peter's talking about fire, and that sounds a bit scarier and a bit less comfortable and a bit less hopeful. But we've got to hold these things in tension. Peter says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Because how we live now matters. How we care for one another matters. How we care for our planet matters. Because we'll take what is good with us into this age to come. We can choose to build with silver and gold or we can choose to build with wood, hay or straw that will get get burnt up. So I want to tell you today there's an opportunity for reset. There's an opportunity to be made new. There's an opportunity to invite Jesus to come and create a clean heart in you today. I want to invite you to stand with me. I want to invite the guys to come and play. Um, We're going to close out in just a couple of minutes. And parents, you need to go and grab your kids. We've just got a few more minutes left. While we're together. You know, maybe we've not been living in that spotless, blameless manner that Peter describes, but today there's an opportunity to come to Jesus, the creator, the one who made everything and the one who will remake everything. And there's an opportunity to be made new in him. Maybe that's the first time for you. Maybe that would be the first time you would say, Jesus, I want new life. I want to be made new. The old way of doing things is not cutting it for me. I want the new life that you offered. Because he is full of grace. He's full of kindness. 
Just take a moment to do that now. Jesus, we open our hearts to you. The one who made all things. The one who made us. God, would you show us anywhere that you want to recreate in our hearts? In your kindness, would you create clean hearts? We give you all the honor all the glory because you are the one who made everything. You are the one who holds it all together. You're the one that holds us together. And don't we know it sometimes? So Jesus, come and do what only you can do. We repent. Like David said, Against you have we sinned, God. We've not stewarded ourselves well. We've not stewarded others well. We've not stewarded this gift of a planet that you've given us well. But would you come and make new in every one of us? Knowing that you are kind, your arms are open wide. There's so much grace for us today, God. So as we draw our time together to a close. If there's anything you want someone else to stand with you, to stand by you and say, yes, Jesus, come make this friend of mine new. I'd invite you to come down to the front where myself and a few friends will be really happy to pray with you. We're also going to sing together while that's happening. So no one's staring at you. No one's looking at you. We're all looking at Jesus. And confession with Jesus is great. There's two types of confession in the Bible. We confess to the Lord and James says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. So find a friend to tell as well. It's good if it's a friend because they can ask you again, how are you doing?
And just as we take this moment to sing, cuts across this whole thing, but game changers, parents, you need to go and grab your kids. But we're just going to hang out in here for a few more minutes. I'm sorry you've got to leave. But who knows how long we'll keep going. So it'll just be another few moments before we sing together.